Good evening. We are glad you're here tonight. It is a beautiful evening, and we're thankful for the opportunity to be together as we worship God. Thank you for the songs that we've been privileged to sing together tonight. It is a blessing to be a child of God and to be able to sing, and we are grateful for that. And so we thank you. Thank you. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back and be with us. We're so honored that you've chosen to come our way. We are looking tonight at John chapter 1. And in our study tonight, we continue looking at key chapters in Scripture. And in John chapter 1, we're going to be talking about the eternal Word. And so I invite you to look with me tonight at John chapter 1. And as we look at this great chapter, John, I have to say, John is one of my favorite books. I love John chapter 1. And it provides for us a glimpse into the Christ, the eternal Word. And so tonight we look at John chapter 1 together. I want to begin by calling attention to the introduction to the Word. And note with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1, John begins by talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. And that is that Jesus existed prior to coming to planet Earth. And so here's what he said. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then listen to this. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So first of all, I think about the perpetuity of the Word. Jesus here identified as that eternal Word. Now you go back to the Old Testament. and You remember, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah foretold of the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One. He identified Him as the Everlasting Father in chapter 9, verse 6, among other names that He used, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, etc. But Jesus is an eternal being. Micah, the prophet of God in the long ago, Micah was a country preacher. And Micah foretold of the birthplace of Jesus, identifying it as Bethlehem of Judea. And he said, with regard to this eternal word, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting or literally from the days of eternity. And so we're talking about an eternal being. Jesus Christ here depicted as an eternal being, existing with the Father, and we try to put into perspective the eternal nature of the Godhead. Here's someone who has no beginning, no ending, and yet our lives are marked by time, aren't they? We have a beginning point and an ending point with regard to the flesh. But Jesus, the Word, has no beginning and no ending. He is an eternal being. And so the perpetuity of the Word. And you know, Paul in Colossians chapter 1 said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I think about His preeminence, His priority to or preeminence over the creation. But then not only are we introduced to the perpetuity of the Word, but also the power of the Word. Look now at verse 3. In verse 3, John said, All things were made through Him. Well, what does he mean when he says all things were made through Him? Well, again, you remember in Colossians chapter 1, 
Paul, as he talked about the second member of the Godhead, the Christ, he said that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Then he said, and by Him were all things made, visible and invisible. So everything that we see, that which we don't even see. We can't see gravity, but who was the author of gravity? Well, God was. We can't see the air that we breathe, but again, God was the source of that. And so John here telling us, that the agent by which the world came into being was through the Word. That is, the eternal Word. The second member of the Godhead. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And you remember in verse 3, the Bible says that God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Down in verse 26, Moses records these words. God said, Let us make man in our image and likeness. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have God the Father, God the Son, or the Eternal Word, and the Holy Spirit, all working in tandem with regard to the creation of the world. And so the power of this Word, and you look around in the world today and there's evidence for God. I know that there are people today that wave off the existence of God and they don't, wanna, they don't want to admit that there was a Creator. And yet the fact of the matter is, Creation itself lends insight into the majesty of God. That There was a designer. Many years ago, back in the 1970s, Thomas B. Warren, Brother Warren graduated from Vanderbilt University, had a Ph.D., uh, taught here in the Memphis area for many years, preached as well. Brother Warren debated Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew, Dr. Anthony Flew, was a world-renowned atheist. And... That debate was held in Texas, I believe. Brother Warren made argument after argument for the existence of Almighty God. Some years ago, prior to the death of Anthony Flew, he came out and acknowledged that there has to be a divine designer. There has to be somebody behind creation. Now, he never came to believe in a personal God as we believe. But he did come to admit the fact that there was or there is a divine footprint upon this earth. And interesting, interestingly, the thing that led him to that conviction was the development of DNA. And I liked what he said. He said, I've always believed we follow the evidence. And so I have to say, with regard to that, he had an honest heart. He at least came to believe there is a God. There is a supreme being. So we have evidence for that. And David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. So we have the perpetuity of the Word and the power of the Word. Now, note if you would, we talk about the pre-incarnate Christ, that is prior to His coming to earth. But then there is the incarnate Christ. Drop down, look at verse 14. In verse 14, here's what John said. And he is verifying for us the incarnation. He said, and the Word, that's Christ, and the Word became flesh. In other words, Jesus tabernacled in human flesh. Though an eternal being, you remember the psalmist talked about a body being prepared for the Messiah. That body was prepared, as you well know, 
Mary was his earthly mother. That which was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. And she brought forth the Christ into the world. And John here is saying, look, this eternal word, the one who is eternal, the one who brought the world into being, he has now become flesh. He has tabernacled in human form on planet earth. Over in 1 John chapter 1, John begins this short epistle by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and then he said, which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have handled. There were some in the first century that had difficulty accepting the fact that an eternal being could abide or take an abode in human flesh. They were Gnostics. They believed that all matter was inherently evil, so they couldn't, they couldn't reconcile how deity could come to earth and dwell in human flesh. And so John, in an effort to combat that, said, look, we have heard the Lord, we've seen the Lord, we've touched the Lord. What does that say about the veracity of His coming? Well, it's documented. But then note, if you would, he talks about their visualization of the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then listen to what he said. And we beheld His glory. The word beheld here carries with it the idea of viewing attentively, to take under consideration. Now, in the first century, think for a minute about those 12 men that became His intimate disciples, later becoming apostles. They had the opportunity to spend time, one-on-one -on -one time, with the second member of the Godhead. They got to hear Him preach. They got to hear Him teach. They saw firsthand the great miracles that He performed time and again. So they were eyewitnesses to the glory of the Christ. As John said, we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What a statement. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matter of fact, He was the perfect embodiment of divine truth, wasn't He? Over in chapter 14, we hear Him say, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Me. There was a reason for the second member of the Godhead tabernacling in human flesh. That reason was for redemption. Jesus left the glories of heaven, came to earth, so that we might enjoy reconciliation with God. Can I wrap my mind around that? I'm not sure that I can. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul there talks about Christ emptying Himself, taking upon Himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, Paul said he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, yes, even the death of the cross. So there was a divine purpose behind the Christ coming to the world. Over in chapter 17, in the shadow of the cross, you remember Jesus is praying to the Father. He realizes that his earthly ministry is drawing to a close. And really, you could take chapters 13 through 17 and bind them together. And you have this intimate discussion with His disciples, His apostles. And He would say in chapter 17, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. 
The Lord Jesus answered the call of the Father to redeem the human family. So first, there is the introduction to the Word, but then secondly, the identification of the Word. I want to now talk for a minute or two about the work of John the Baptizer. John introduces us, as the other gospel writers do, to the forerunner of the Christ. He begins by first talking about his work. Now I want you to look, if you would, at verse 6. In verse 6, John said, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John had a heaven-sent mission. Matter of fact, his purpose spelled out going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah foretold of the coming of the role of the forerunner. So in verse 7 he said, This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him, listen to him, might believe. And I think that's very interesting. Because John would later say about the Christ over in chapter 3, that he must increase, but I must decrease. John's ministry, his work, was to point people in the direction of the Christ. And so I think about his mission and his message. Now let's just note a couple of passages in connection with this. Down in verse 15, John bore witness of Christ and cried out. Listen to what he said. This was he of whom I said, He comes after me. He who comes after me is preferred before me. In other words, he ranks higher than I. For he was before me, which again suggests his preexistent state, doesn't it? Then down in verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John was, John's purpose was to point people in the direction of the Christ. And so he said, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Well, I can understand how they might have thought of Elijah in connection with John the Baptist. He did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Elijah was one of God's great prophets, wasn't he? And he was bold and courageous and man of conviction, much like John. And so then, he, then they ask, are you the prophet? Well, that takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, when Moses talked about the coming of the Christ, that he would be a prophet of God. His response was, no. So then they asked him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And listen to what he said. He quotes Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John's role was to point people in the direction of the Christ. And let me now just pause there for a minute and let's add to his work, his witness. John came to bear witness of the Christ. He was the forerunner. His intent was to point people in the direction of God's anointed one the Son of God. So with that in mind, drop down if you would and note verse 29. In verse 29, 
he identifies Jesus as God's sacrifice. That is, he identifies him as the sacrificial lamb. John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. In our previous studies, we've talked about the Passover lamb. And you remember Paul makes the connection between Exodus chapter 12 and Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When he said, Behold, or rather when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Peter, one of the great disciples of Christ, talks about Jesus and His redemptive work, that He was as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. So John the Baptist identifies Jesus as God's sacrifice, but also as God's Son. Now listen to what is said in verse 30. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me. For He was before me, again, reminding us of His preexistent state and His rank. I did not know Him, but that He should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He remained upon Him. I did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on Him, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now listen to this, verse 34. John said, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John here, authenticating the sonship of God's only begotten Son. Now Matthew tells us, if you go back to the book of Matthew, you remember Matthew said that John began his earthly ministry preaching repentance. He said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And no doubt, John is pointing to that coming kingdom, the very kingdom that Daniel of old had foretold of. This eternal kingdom. The one Isaiah said would house all nations. And so John is preaching in the wilderness of Judea. His message is that of repentance, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the way, Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, his message was a baptism under repentance of the remission of sins. And so he is acknowledging the sonship of Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, or Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, you remember a voice came forth from heaven. And God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So God the Father placing His stamp of approval on the Christ. So John, he identifies Jesus as God's sacrifice and as God's Son. But there's a third thing I want you to see in our study today. It has to do with the investigation of the Word. Now, let's just talk for a minute or two about the message as it relates to Jesus. Drop down now look at verse 35. Again the next day, and John stood with two of his disciples. Now, you've got to remember, John's ministry 
is to point people in the direction of Jesus. That's his goal. And so when John saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak. And what they do? The text says they followed Jesus. Our goal in preaching and teaching is not to, not to gain personal adulation. It's not about cultivating a following. But rather, our goal is to point people in the direction of Jesus. And so over in chapter 3, John would say, Look, he must increase, speaking of Christ. My intent is to elevate Christ. So he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. I can just imagine John. He's on the stage. He introduces Jesus, and now he just quietly backs out. Leaves the stage. Now note if you would, verse 38. In these verses you have an invitation and what I would call an examination. Those two disciples that heard him speak, John the Apostle said they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And then listen to verse 39. I love this. Jesus said, Come and see. A little bit later, we're going to find Philip making the very same statement about the Christ. Come and see. When we talk to people about Jesus and His church, His redemptive plan, all we're asking is, look, just come and see. Evaluate. You know, do your homework. The invitation is, come and see. The Lord Jesus invites people of all ages to make an examination of Him, doesn't He? You know, we can investigate Him. We can, we can read throughout the gospel narratives and we can draw conclusions about the identity of Christ, His work, His mission, his efforts on our behalf, His love, His mercy, His grace, His kindness, all of these things are developed time and again throughout the Scriptures. So the invitation is to come and see. Now, in verse 39, the Bible says, They came and saw where He was staying and remained with Him that day. And that was about the tenth hour. So they've been with Him for a period of time. Over the course of that time, what do you think they talked about? You think they had the opportunity to investigate? Maybe to develop more fully in their minds something about the Christ? Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And the Bible says he first found his own brother Simon and said, Now listen to this. We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. How did he come to that conclusion? There was an invitation. There was an examination of the evidence. And his conclusion, his conclusion was, we have found the Christ, the Anointed One, the One of whom the prophets of old had been pointing to. And the Bible says He brought Him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at Him, He said, You're Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, pick up with me, if you would, in verse 43. 
in verse 43, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Philip, or rather Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael then said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. I want you to see something here. We talk about the message as it relates to Christ. But now we have some messengers on behalf of Christ. You know what really strikes me about this? You've got people who cared enough to share Jesus with others. Is that not what we're supposed to be doing? You know, if you care, if you care about the souls of other people, won't you introduce them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Won't you invite people, as the Lord did, to come and see? Look, just come and make an evaluation. We have no control over what people do with the gospel, but we do have control whether or not we sow that seed, don't we? Now, look again at the text. Back up very quickly. The Bible says that Andrew first found his own brother Simon. And he said, we found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Andrew wanted his brother to meet the Lord. He wanted Peter to have the opportunity to evaluate and make his own decision. That's all we're trying to do today. Introduce people to the Lord. Give them the opportunity to hear the gospel, believe it, and obey it. That's the beauty of what you see right here. And you go back and you look at the book of Acts. The men that Jesus selected to be His disciples or apostles, they turned the world upside down, preaching and teaching the Christ, didn't they? You know, you think about Peter and John. Peter had vouched that he would stand with stand with the Lord and for the Lord, come what may. Unfortunately, he wasn't nearly as strong as he thought he was. But following the Lord's resurrection and restoration of Peter, you have a bold, courageous, convicted man preaching and teaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with people. So in Acts chapter 4, when he and John were told not to preach or teach in the name of Christ. They said, look, we can't but speak, listen to him, the things that we have seen and heard. For three, three and a half years, they had an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw him at work. They saw evidence of his love and compassion and care. They knew he was interested in the souls of people, so much so that he invested in those souls by dying on Calvary's cross. You remember in verse 48, Nathanael asked Jesus, How do you know me? 
And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Again, reminding us of the Christ and the fact that He is deity. And here on this occasion, Nathanael acknowledges, acknowledges Him as the very Son of the living God. I want to close tonight by saying this. The Bible is an introduction to God. The Bible identifies for us the nature of God. And the Bible invites us to do our homework, to investigate. It's incumbent on all of us to do our homework, to investigate. And then we have to draw our conclusions. Now, let's close with what is recorded down in verse 11. The text says that Jesus came to His own. His own did not receive Him. Many of the Jews, as you well know, rejected the Christ. Isaiah had foretold the fact that He would be rejected and despised by men. But in verse 12, John said, As many as received Him, to, to them He gave the right, the privilege to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, to have the privilege to come to an understanding of the identity of Christ and to recognize that through obeying the gospel, we can enjoy a relationship with Him, a relationship that will be ongoing throughout all of eternity. And so John said, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God reminding us of that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Jesus there talking about the new birth. And that new birth affords us a new beginning, as I said this morning. Inherent in that new beginning are new blessings. The opportunity to start anew. Clean slate. That's what Jesus offers. That's the beauty of of the eternal word. So Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When we come to Jesus in simple, trusting faith, believing that He is who He claimed to be, the Son of God, understanding that based upon our conviction of the Christ, we're willing to honor His will. So we repent of our sins. We turn from a life of sin. We confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart, that Jesus is the Son of God. We are immersed in water so that our sins might be washed away. That's what Saul of Tarsus did, as instructed by Ananias in Acts twenty-two sixteen. When we do that, we become a part of the kingdom that Jesus told Nicodemus about. The beauty of being in the kingdom is God's the Savior of that kingdom. If you're here tonight and you're not a part of the kingdom of God, our encouragement to you would be to obey the gospel tonight. Come to Christ believing that all your sins can be washed away. If you're here tonight, let's just say your life's not what it ought to be, and you need to be back in fellowship with God and His people, 
we would be more than happy to pray with you and for you. Our elders would be happy to lead prayer tonight on your behalf. And you can leave here back in fellowship with God knowing that you've got a home waiting for you in heaven. Won't you come as we stand and sing?